Hello and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Hi, I'm Margo. And I'm Sonia. And we're historians interested in making cultural history and folklore accessible. We've made the Baba Yaga Project, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a website to build a community and learn from the past together. We hope you join us for all of Season 3, and subscribe to get notified every time we post. Um, so, hi. 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 <laughs> um, I'm not Sonia. No, you're not. Okay. Do you... Do you- do you want to explain what's going on? Sonia's very busy. Sonia has so busy. Sonia has life and school stuff going on. Sonia's uh, currently becoming a doctor. Yeah. She's a in her PhD. larval phase. Yeah. Yeah. Which is going to be applicable to uh, the content. I think we're she's talking in the, the pupil, pupus. Cause yes. she's like, I feel like larval would be doing your comps, and now she's fully cocooned in her writing her thesis. She has become and a goo within the cocoon, and exactly. she will be entirely reformed, <laughs> but still remember the stuff from when she was a caterpillar. Exactly. Yeah. So once once she's able to come out of her cocoon of having submitted her thesis we're all gonna give her a high five where she she will be back yeah, but right now back. she has to hungry hungry caterpillar her way which means it's it's sam's turn to yeah uh, i i so i'm gonna be recording uh here today using a script that sonia wrote so she is still here here in spirit she's here in spirit i've made some classics tweaks and some contributions, and I've got a little aside that I uh, we're going to talk about Sappho a little bit. Mm. Um, but today we're going to be talking about uh, kind of agriculture in general, but really specifically, we're going to be talking about beekeeping and bees yeah. and human interactions with bees in the ancient and medieval world. And this is such an important topic because really prior to uh, the the later Middle Ages, when you start getting sugarcane in Europe. Mm-hmm. Honey is the sweetest thing that anybody interacts with. It's difficult to get, but it's so valuable right. because there's there's really nothing else that is sweet like honey in people's diet. You know, it's not something you're going to eat very often, right. but when you do have it, there is nothing else that you're going to get. Right. So uh, bees and beekeeping, super unique, super important. It's got a little subtopic within agricultural history. And uh, before we transition into that history, I just want to give like a little bit of a biology lesson. So we are all kind <laughs> okay. of on the same page about exactly what it is we're talking about. How it, do bees work? <laughs> you know, right. So like just really, really quickly, um, honey is really straightforward as like the just the way that bees store food for themselves. Right. So the drone bees will go out or the, the worker bees will go out and they will gather nectar mm-hmm. and we'll drink some of it. And they'll use some of that food energy to fly back to the hive, but the rest of it they'll digest a little bit, regurgitate, and then store, and then that's for the whole hive um, as food for when the weather gets cold or if there's not very much food available at a certain time of year. That's just like stored food through to them. Um, And because of the the unique qualities of honey as Mm -hmm. a foodstuff, this like sweet thing that you have, and also it can be used uh, in medication and uh, you can use wax for all sorts of different stuff. Um, You can uh, ferment honey into mead and make alcohol. Yeah. Uh, Bees have been a feature in human culture, in myth and in folklore around the world. You can use it to help preserve foods as well. Exactly, right? So there's all of these- anaerobic- Exactly. So the same reasons that it's useful as medication, you yeah. can use it to preserve other food as well. So it's this really valuable product. So that means that bees and honey have been a feature in myth and folklore around the world for a very long time. Bees themselves are often thought about as being divine or being a gift from the divine. And uh, honey especially, often being conceived of as a, a divine gift. And... This is all tied up with the economic importance of bees and honey who are, you know, we can access 
honey in the wild. You know, there are wild right. beehives and we can go and we can search that out and we can find that and we can eat it. Mm-hmm. A little bit dangerous because you get stung. But then you also have this semi-domestication and people right. go out and figure out new ways to search for bees and then to semi-domesticate them mm-hmm. and bring them into hives. And this is a very ancient activity. So there's a family of bee-eating woodpeckers known as honey guides because people mostly in Africa have historically followed these birds to find wild hives. This behavior might be the earliest beekeeping behavior among humans because we think it might date back or even to like early hominids, like before modern human beings. You know, like this this relationship (laughs) they have, this sort of triangular relationship with three different species, right? These early hominids, these birds, and the bees. The earliest sort of firm evidence that we have for human interactions with bees mm-hmm. comes from a Mesolithic, so the Middle Stone Age, a Mesolithic uh, rock painting in a cave in Valencia, Spain, dating back uh, at least 8,000 years. And this depicts two honey foragers collecting honey and honeycomb from a wild bee's nest. So these figures are depicted carrying baskets um, or maybe gourds and using a ladder or a series of ropes to reach this nest up on a high place. This is only one of a series of rock pictures that we have showing humans interacting with honey hives. There are similar figures in uh, ancient rock art from South Africa. And there is some older art from the Paleolithic that could maybe depict wild honey humping, but these examples are are, um, controversial. People contest that. And one of the interesting things about working with honey as an archaeological material is because it's so long lasting we actually have like ancient honey yeah and the oldest known preserved honey from a human environment uh, was found in georgia of all places Mm -hmm. right so it's not a country that was where the um, archaeological heritage is something that we think about very much Mm -hmm. but georgia has this very very long history of human habitation and the oldest honey that we know of from a human um from a human environment was found during the construction of the Baku Tbilisi Sehan. My Turkish is not very good. Pipeline. So that's a uh, pipeline that passes through the former Soviet Republic of Georgia from mm-hmm. Azerbaijan to Turkey. And that was constructed in the early 2000s. And archaeologists during that process found honey on the inner surface of a clay vessel or multiple clay vessels and earthed from an ancient tomb. And that's probably dating back somewhere between uh, 4,700 and 5,500 years. So that's a long, long, long time ago, right? If you're up on the, like, internet news about archaeology, that honey is part of the um, Forbidden Sandwich. Mm. Which is made from the the um, bread starter that was found in Egypt, I think it was. Well, and I, then there was cheese that was found somewhere in Europe. That's fantastic. The the one that I always think of is they found some uh, date seeds for an extinct species of date palm. Yeah, in an Egyptian tomb, and they planted them, and they grew. And this was important. I might be getting this wrong, but I think this was this was important because it was a, a species of date that's mentioned in, in the, Hebrew the Hebrew Bible. Bible. And yeah. so like you can now do these ancient rituals. Yeah. Like, so some very observant Jews are like excited that they have the proper dates to do this now. That's yeah. super cool. Like yeah. like 4,000 year old seeds. I watched a documentary seeds. about those because they didn't think that they were going to. No, it was just like a total fluke. Germinate. Yeah. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Uh, and, you know. Can I, also go on the forbidden sandwich. They could, you know, like a little bit of date marmalade and something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, something that we skipped is is dates also in this part of the world that we're talking about. Those are one of the only other sweet things. Right. So that's also why those get integrated mm-hmm. into a ritual because, you know, like Sugar. this incredibly important experience. Um, and there's all sorts of like. I can't think of stuff off the top of my head here, but like sweet metaphors in uh, old Greek poetry, like the oldest, oldest Greek poetry, mm-hmm. like sweet stuff is really important. So the oldest evidence of actual honey that we have is from Georgia. Um, but the earliest evidence that we have for uh, beekeeping as a practice rather than wild honey hunting, uh, that's all from ancient Egypt, right? Okay. So like where these date seeds came from. The oldest pictorial evidence we have is from the Sun Temple of Nusera uh, at Abu Ghraib, which is from uh, 4,400 years ago, around 2400 BCE. 
and he's a, a pharaoh of the fifth dynasty. That relief depicts bees, hives, and several men handling and packaging honey in an organized manner. And that might suggest that beekeeping was probably a established practice already for some time. So 4,400 years ago, we think it probably was established for a while after that, or well before that. The oldest known written records for beekeeping are also from ancient Egypt, although I don't have them noted down exactly what those were. I assume that's probably in some sort of um, medical or magical text, and those are kind of the same thing in Egypt. The dead were often buried uh, in or with honey in Egypt and Mesopotamia. That was part of the mummification process. And bees themselves were kept at temples uh, to produce temple to produce honey for temple offerings and for mummification and for other uses. The first proper archaeological uh, find of an actual apiary right. uh, is significantly later, and that's from the mid 10th century. So not. I mean, it's a thousand years later, but like <laughs> when you go back this far, a thousand years between friends, <laughs> what's that? So mid 10th to early 9th century, here, a thousand years there, right. so mid 10th or early 9th century BCE. So that's, you know, 1400 years after uh, these pictures from Egypt. Um, that's the earliest known actual apiary that we found. And that's in Tel Rehov in Israel. It's in quite an extensive apiary that was discovered and it may contain... It may have contained as many as 100 straw and clay hives, these sort of typical cylindrical hives that we, we think of as, as beehives. Those that were excavated were found stacked in horizontal rows, about three tiers high, with small holes in the lids for the coming and going of bees. And there's even some evidence of the bees themselves still preserved inside, also traces of honey and wax. These poor little dudes. I wonder how that got buried to be preserved like that with the bees still inside super interesting because a lot of these old archaeological sites they had to be destroyed in a particular way in order to be preserved Mm -hmm. like you know this about like the old clay tablets that we have like the libraries of clay tablets the only reason those survived is because they were baked like the actual libraries they would keep them soft so you could rub something out and keep it right so the library had to be burnt down for the clay to be preserved oh right super interesting yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean like the stuff that was written in stone that we have right but like the old mesopotamian clay tablet writing that only survives because Because the libraries were burned down super cool the oldest writing we have (laughs) but back to this telrahov find so Besides the apiary itself, there were cultic items found nearby, including an altar depicting a fertility goddess. Mm -hmm. And this has led to uh, some ideas that maybe there was ancient Israelite cultic practice around bees and honey wax uh, and beeswax and honey, Mm -hmm. just like there was in neighboring Egypt and in the Mesopotamian cultures a little bit further east. The existence of these practices would not be surprising, obviously, because around the Mediterranean world, this was like a a really common thing to tie bees and fertility goddesses together. Right. Which leads us to ancient Greece, which is my neck of the woods. Beekeeping is quite well documented, both as um, a kind of standard agricultural practice. Honey was a major project of the region around Athens that was like kind of typical of of like the Athenian uh, economy to such an extent that from the one of the earliest law codes that we have uh, from Athens so this is I think Solon's laws from 594 BC one of the laws is uh, about beekeeping and it reads thus he who sets up hives of bees must put them 300 feet apart uh, from those already installed by another. And we do have, you know, extensive archaeological record of hives themselves from this area. According to the Roman writer Columella, uh, Greek peak Greek beekeepers of the Hellenistic period did not hesitate to move their hives over uh, long distances to maximize production. So the kind of the same practice that we have today of moving hives for pollination and also, you know, to access better resources, better nectar for the, the bees themselves. 
in the mythos for stealing yes you know you because absolutely you can steal these things movable goods um in the mythological sphere there was a regional pastoral god aristeas Mm -hmm. who is said in some sources to have introduced beekeeping to humans so one version of this myth goes that uh aristeas inadvertently caused the death of your eurydice eurydice who uh, stepped upon a snake while running away from him Mm -hmm. because young women are constantly running away from gods in Greek mythology. I wonder why. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not... I study these people. I don't think they're good people. I mean, and... and But, like, they're not bad people. No, no, no. Like, they understand. They're just people. I mean, and and this is myth, right? So, like... One of the interesting things about Greek religion and Greek mythology is that, like, the gods do bad things, yeah. right? And uh, a lot of Greek, Greek literature is about dealing with the fact that the divine order includes evil and includes, like, cruelty. Right. And it's not a straightforward, uh, not a straightforward problem to solve. But this version of this story with Aristeus and Eurydice is that she was running away from him. She steps on a snake. She dies too bad uh her sisters a bunch of nymphs uh punished aristis <laughs> womp womp <laughs> you should have just got assaulted then. <laughs> um uh. so she's a nymph running away yeah yeah and her sisters also nymphs uh they punish aristis by killing all of his bees oh. And witnessing the empty hives where his bees had lived, uh, Aristeus consults Proteus, uh, who advises him to give honor and memory of Eurydice by sacrificing four bulls and four cows. After he did this, he let them rot, and from their corpses rose bees to fill his empty hives. Prophecy is important in Greek culture. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be some sort of association between bees and prophecy. Okay. Uh, in the Homeric hymn to Hermes, the author acknowledges that Apollo's gift of prophecy uh, comes to him from three bee maidens. Usually, so these are usually, but sometimes uh, not associated with the three eye. Um, and this is a trinity of, so Pindar, right? So he's a, um, what, sixth century important, I don't like him, I think he's, dead boring but important poet um and he refers to the oracle of delphi which is the most important and most famous of the greek oracles mm-hmm. he refers to that as the delphian bee ah i know right <laughs> and then there's some speculation that we can connect this back to mycenaean and minoan uh myth so the mycenaeans were the earliest greek-speaking civilization we have the minoans we haven't we can't read their writing we don't know if they spoke greek or not we don't think they did and these are Bronze Age civilizations in Greece. Okay. In, uh, in what is now Greece. And we think that the bee was an emblem of one of their goddesses, who the in Mycenaean Greek is called Potnia, which means just the lady okay. um, or like queen. And we have some references to her as pure mother bee. And there's also some evidence that the priestesses of this goddess were themselves referred to as bees. So the, the Greek word for bee is Melissa. That's where we get the name Melissa. Sorry, I buried the lead. Melissa means honeybee. You ever ah. met a Melissa? Anyway. So does De- Devora, which is oh, yeah. Deborah. Yeah, 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 exactly. I know that because my mother's name is Deborah. <laughs> cool. Anyway, yeah. So it's, a, it's And Melissa was quite a common name in, in ancient Greece. This is a common name in ancient Greece. Yeah, right. I love Isn't it's that like great? The Tiffany problem. It's exactly. It's exactly the Tiffany problem. Where <laughs> it seems like such a like a, an average white person name yeah. now, and it's like, nope, super ancient. Yeah. Yeah. And if Tiffany's also. If anybody doesn't know, Tiffany is a medieval name. Yeah. Also Greek originally yeah. for Theophania, which means like goddess has appeared. Yeah. So there's a bunch of medieval women in britain running around named tiffany yeah there's also a woman whose name was d-i-o-t and then her last name was uh c-o-k-e in medieval britain nice diat coke 
Right. But it looks like Diet Coke. Yeah. <laughs> I'd never heard of that one. That's a really fantastic. wonderful Tiffany problem story. What's the etymology of that? I I don't remember. I just remember seeing it in That's a list fantastic. of like funny historical is, names. Yeah. I mean, we can do funny historical names as an aside here. I was going to go into my Sappho aside for a second, but do you okay. want to do funny historical names for a second? Because I used to work as a professional genealogist. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we had fantastic funny names. Mm-hmm. My favorite is Preserved Fish the Third. So, uh, Preserved, of course, being like a Protestant, uh, yeah. like, like, what do you call it? It's like the Puritan, Puritan names. Exactly. But Preserved Fish... Fish the third was the son of Preserved Fish the first. Preserved Fish the second was his older brother who died young. And so uh, they renamed another son. It was like the, yeah, the Puritans did that a lot. Yeah, I know. Deep I, their children died young a lot. Yeah. When you wouldn't, you wouldn't do the thing that like Catholics would do where you had to change. Yeah the name in some way so like a lot of people it was like oh well i had my son john michael yeah he died so now i'm having a son again it's michael john yeah but um deep aside into the uh if listeners will have to let us know if you would like this content sonia and i are working on a twilight fan fiction where they actually are just Puritans. If you know anything about Twilight, Carlisle was a Puritan before he got turned into a vampire. Um, but my the name that I chose from the historical record, a la Stephanie Meyer, for Edward is um, Christ died for thy sins. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but who is a real historical person? Christ died for the sins. Went by Nicholas. Yeah, that makes sense. But yeah, yeah, ha- yeah. I um, would too, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was. A, I liked that one. Um, there's a lot of really. I'm trying to remember the more of my genealogy names. There was a list up on the wall where I was working. <laughs> like, anyway. Do you want to have some Sappho now? Yes. Okay. I like we're going to do a whole a <laughs> separate thing on Sappho. But my favorite Sappho fragment is an aphorism that was ascribed to her by mm-hmm. later authors. So like the earliest version of this aphorism we have doesn't mention her and comes 300 years after she died. Okay. So like we don't know, but it does kind of fit into melody and in Greek, I'm going to read it to you in Greek okay. because the, all of the words start with M. So it like totally alliterates. <laughs> Okay. So in Greek, it's metamoi mele mete melissa. So melissa, melissa, right? Melissa. So you got that one. Yeah. Meli means honey. honey. So mete moi met, meli mete melissa. Neither the honey nor the bee for me. So we don't totally know what it means. One of the guys who quotes it, and I have this here somewhere. This is from Trifo, who is a Hellenistic scholar like this is a period of a lot of like literary canonization scholarship on older Greek authors. And he has a book called on tropes. Trope (laughs) is also a Greek word. Um, And he uh, says that this is like a sapphic. uh, So I I total lie. Actually, the earliest version does mention Sappho that the expression was proverbial. I'm quoting here quote that the expression was proverbial, but found in her work. Okay, so maybe it is older than her. And he says that it means... So, no, and then somebody else who actually gives us an explanation of what it means. Uh, This is Diogenianus, who is uh, a Greek writer working in Hadrian's times who does a collection of aphorisms. Okay. Um, So under the Roman Empire, again, another couple hundred years later. And he says that it's about people who do not want to mix uh, good with bad, who do not want to experience anything mixed good with bad. Okay. I just love that it alliterates. <laughs> I just think it's great. I like who knows what the aphorism itself means, but uh, I think that's fantastic. Right. So we actually have a lot of discussions of bees in ancient Greek literature. So Hesiod, so this is the second oldest, this is probably the oldest known named author that we think was actually a real person. Mm-hmm. The oldest Greek literature that we have is from homer but we don't think homer is a real person anymore we think he was like many poets Uh, working together under one name or over like a long period of time 
in an oral tradition producing these poets that have one name ascribed to them, whatever. Okay. But he's yeah, the oldest poet that we have who we think was probably a real person. He compares women to bees. Okay. Which is great. <laughs> and in Hesiod, bees are lazy grifters, which is why women are lazy grifters. And <laughs> yeah, constantly reaping the fruit of other people's labor um, because they're just going out to the flowers and grabbing stuff and going back, stuff. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Zeus chose the bees as the model for women. <laughs> which sucks and so the, well then the next one that i'm gonna get to is also misogynistic but in like exactly the reverse way um so the poet simonides uh who we know from um not simonides but semonides there's two poets with really similar names okay but the poet semonides has a long poem about why women suck and <laughs> what kind of woman you should marry as a man and he compares all of these different kinds of women to animals. So, like, there's a pig woman and, like, like all sorts of terrible stuff. But the bee woman is the only good woman. So this is, like, exactly the inverted. Okay. Most women are terrible, but bees are not lazy. They're industrious. They're always working and being really good citizens. And so you should marry a, a bee personality woman and not a pig personality woman. Uh, because wow. she is going so to be a good here, like, industrious ancient greek buzzfeed article oh yeah like straight <laughs> up and he said he so he has has two poems one about the creation of the world the theogony and mm -hmm. one about like agricultural practice that's mm -hmm. like advice for his brother and one of those pieces of advice is also about you should make sure that you marry a girl who's young but not too young like 14 15 16 but he says like a few years after she becomes a woman becomes a woman I don't have the exact text in front of me, but like, yeah, lots of like terrible days in advice from ancient Greece. And it's all mixed up with bees. <laughs> Way. <laughs> Let's go back to, uh, to, to Sonia's script here. So I've done a little bit of like the, uh, this, so this is the proper classical stuff. So we're now right. going into the Neoplatonic, uh, like, sort of later antique period okay. so the high roman empire okay. and the neoplatonic philosopher porphyry mentions that there were also priestesses of demeter the agricultural goddess right. who were called melissae so that were called the bees and we also know that melissa was a, a name applied to the goddess artemis so there's lots okay. of sort of fertility goddess associations there is a related god named Melisaeus who gets uh, mentioned a couple times as a god of honey and bees. And his, it was his daughters, Ida and uh, Adrastea, who fed the infant Zeus, right? Like the whole story about Zeus getting hidden as a baby. Right. And he gets fed milk and honey right. as his like rich, luxurious food. And it was his uh, Melisaeus' daughters who fed him. Milk and honey also brings us to the to the Hebrew Bible. I was about and to say exactly find right. The land of yeah, milk yeah, yeah, yeah. And honey. exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and that phrase uh, "land of milk and honey" is found in the Bible a couple times. In the Book of Proverbs, there, uh, Proverbs twenty four thirteen says, "Eat honey, my son, for it is good." That is unambiguous. <laughs> but then also, uh, it is not good to eat too much honey. <laughs> So maybe a little bit ambiguous. <laughs> and uh, I really love, I love English translations of the Hebrew Bible oh. where things are just like, this is good. <laughs> God created the heavens and the earth. It was good. It was good. <laughs> it was good. And it, like, so, I mean, I, I, I don't read Hebrew very well, but um, I do read Greek quite well. And that means I can read the Greek versions of the Bible. Um, the New Testament was written in Greek. And it's not very complicated linguistically. Like philosophically, <laughs> yeah. there's lots of complicated ideas. But like those translations that are like, it was good. <laughs> that's kind of what the poetry says. You know, like that's actually what the yeah. original is. I like eh, that. It's very I mean, like, straightforward. It's not hard to remember, which no, I think is probably no, no. the point. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So one of my favorite Jewish holidays, I'm not Jewish, but my partner is. And one of the things that I look forward to every year is Rosh Hashanah. So the beginning, mm -hmm. so the, the beginning of the Jewish New Year, uh, and the traditional meal then is apples dipped in honey, right? Yeah. So you have something sweet at the beginning of the New Year, uh, and that means that some you know Rosh Hashanah greeting cards will have like pictures of honey on it and stuff, yeah. right? Um, 
uh, and then some congregations, actually, I didn't know this, but this is in the notes here. In some congregations, small straws of honey are given out to the congregation for the for the service. I'd never heard about that before. That's cool. And now we are going to really miss Sonia because we're getting into the medieval period, which I don't know as well. Sonia! Yeah, well, she's got important stuff to be doing. Okay, so during the Middle Ages... Mm-hmm. During the Middle Ages, one could find many farms that kept beehives and collected honey. However, very few medieval texts actually discuss beekeeping or offer any sort of in-depth details about what the practices actually were. There is one also from the the Greek-speaking world, from the medieval Greek-speaking world. There's a Byzantine uh, work on farming called the Geoponica, which comes from the 10th century, and it offers some details on beekeeping. There is like a whole chapter on bees and beekeeping. One of the most interesting parts is a long description of bees, which praises the creatures. <laughs> so the bee is the wisest and cleverest of all animals and the closest to man in intelligence. Its works are truly divine <laughs> and of the greatest use to mankind. Its social life resembles that of the best regulated cities. And then on beehives. Uh, the best hives, that is, containers for the swarms, are made from beechwood boards or from fig or equally from pine or valonia oak. These should be one cubit wide and two cubits long and rubbed on the outside with a kneaded mixture of ash and cow dung so they are less likely to rot. They, are, they should be ventilated obliquely so that the wind blowing gently will dry and cool whatever is cobwebby and moldy. And this makes me want to learn what the Greek word for cobweb is, because that is not a word I know. <laughs> and there must be one. Yeah. Fantastic. Do you know what a cubit is? Uh, Do you need a reminder? I know. It's the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. Okay. Yeah. Because I know that there's like, and so it's that's one of those things how like the arc is Yeah, is cubits. Yeah. And, and... Well, it's like a foot was just... The length of somebody's foot, right? But a cubit is like very specifically that length. And of course, that is going to vary. And now we're both touching the length from (laughs) elbow to the tip of your middle finger. Elbow to the tip of your middle finger. Yeah. So my cubit is going to be longer than your cubit because I am a gargantuan human and you are regular sized. (laughs) Yeah. Um well, I don't think that anybody would be measuring from me because I you are have, a woman. Oh, yeah, lady arms. You have lady arms. Poor, that can't be tiny trusted. Lady arms. <laughs> Not that women weren't making economic contributions, like a cubit of whatever wool that women were spinning. Like yeah. maybe they would measure that in cubits, but like also you would have like specific units for whatever thing that you were yeah. doing. Yeah. Anyway, and then they were these were standardized in different area so like the biblical cubit that for noah's ark Mm -hmm. like there was a standard cubit in israel there was also a standard Uh, cubit in athens they were not the same right yeah but we translate them all the same way should i read more from the geoponica (laughs) let's do more from the geoponica well so here's i'm i'm fascinated in the the statement that the bees are the closest to man in intelligence because i i think that's really interesting if you think about bees like ants as like the entity the actual entity is the whole hive rather than a singular bee in which case i'm like i'm pretty sure that they're smarter than people well it's like it's just like such a totally different form of existence there's there's such an interesting history of comparing human society and bee society. Yeah. Right. Okay. So we didn't discover that queen bees were female until like the 1700s. Okay. Right. And so before that, people just assumed that there was a king bee. <laughs> right. Like we, we we could figure out that there was one that was bigger and that was clearly important to the life of the hive. Mm-hmm. So obviously, like Aristotle says, there's a king bee. Right. Like, of course, there must be. <laughs> Um, because boys are important. And then, you know, did they also assume that all the bees that were flying out, that the drone bees were male? I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. I could look this up and we could put it on the socials or something. Because, like the, the, the male bees are just like, at least for honeybees. Yeah. They're just like sex slaves. You're, yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're like yeah. these tiny little things and there's only a few of yeah. them born and like, yeah, they're yeah. like just... And like, then 
all other bees and then they die. are yeah. female. Yeah. 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 It's a very well-regulated society. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, I could look up at Aristotle some more about like what oh. he thought, but like, so the, the myth of Hesiod where the bees or no in, in Aristeas where the bees come out of the, the cow's dead uh-huh. body. One of the things that Aristotle says in his um, history of animals is uh, that flies come emerge naturally out of rotting meat. Okay. Right? And so it's like this interesting echo of the Aristeus myth. Okay. Right? Where like yeah. these animals, and I'm not sure if he extends that to bees. I would have to go look that up. Okay. Um, I know where I could do that. It would take me a second here. I'm not going to bother right now because we've got Gail Panica to read. Actually, yeah. no, can I say one other thing? Yeah. Okay, so this is kind of in your neck of the woods okay. um, because it's Great Awakening stuff. Oh. Um, but the I'm fascinated by the way that the Mormon movement appropriates ancient culture because okay. they do, right? Yeah. Like, So like the Book of Mormon is written in this uh, – what it wasn't modern English, right? It was written yeah. to imitate – the English style of the King James Bible. Yeah. Right. Um, but then one of the symbols that the, the, the Mormon movement, the Latter-day Saints movement had used is the beehive and the ancient made up fake ancient word that uh, Joseph Smith in his ancient made up fake ancient language um, was Deseret. And so you see Deseret, that was the word for beehive. Okay. And so you see, or for honeybee, but it was a symbol of industry so that you see that like the, the, the nation that they thought about founding in the right. Western U S was the desert. And then like the, there's still a desert times, which is like a major Utah newspaper, but <laughs> right. he's hearkening back to literally the stuff that we're talking about in the ancient world about, yeah. you know, the bee being this like ancient and primordial symbol of industry and like honey being yeah. this important religious like product and like all of this that just gets well and that yeah well it it stays as part of like i think things get kind of weird in like the the catholic world but it and i don't know a lot about yeah yeah, you're a protestant yeah um but yeah i am a protestant and i study protestants (laughs) i'm in in the new world and it's you know aside from like the quebecois jesuits Mm -hmm. it's just Mm -hmm. it's aggressively protestant but the the idea of Christian nations being like beehives and Christ as a bee and like all of these symbols are like a really big, it's a, it's a huge part of the development of like American, like, like U S culture. Yeah. And the idea of like, we say now like Puritan, but it work ethic, but like, it really is like yes puritans but the baptist and anabaptist mm-hmm. and all of these movements and then especially with the great awakening and the second great awakening you have this idea of industriousness um and creating a like good christian nation where like by they'll have it 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 has a lot to do with like justifying the nation yeah yeah. and it gets very much wrapped up into like the idea of like using the land bettering the land yeah um in the modern period a lot of the idea the idea that it it should be this like busy a busy bee yeah it i mean the modern period there's a lot of biological metaphors for the nation that we think about the nation as like a natural thing like and they get get totally wrapped up in racial conversations as well right like literally blood and soil yeah and uh yeah no bees i'm sure are in there like i don't know the modern period as well but well and that and it's in that again in like the the justification setup so you have the the reason that i don't use the signifiers for like the size of communities mm-hmm. with like band tribe yeah, yeah, yeah nation whatever um because that is 
totally arbitrary oh, yeah. made up ideas from the Victorians who were yeah. trying to delegitimize other nations or other communities or governmental structures. And part of that was in size and complexity and the idea of having individualized roles, which yeah. and bees. <laughs> and ancient history is all part of that because yeah. they're they're all using Homeric Greece and looking at well, clearly there's a progression and a development where you yeah. have these early tribal societies in the ancient Greek world. Yeah. And then we get better. Right? <laughs> Which is nonsense. Yeah. But like this it's ancient just a stuff different is all in there too. Government structure Absolutely. is all that it yeah. 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 And and you know, some governing structures work better for different situations and like Yeah. Well, obviously. We're just thinking about like the size of a society too, right? Yeah. Like obviously that's gonna gonna affect what you should be doing. Well, because they'll say things like, like for tribe versus band or whatever. But like once you actually get into how like family systems in Indigenous North America work, like that's not those are not like wait they'll be like oh well it's like if your government structure only has like 50 people in it then you're a band mm -hmm. and if it's between like however many hundred and however many hundred then that's a tribe mm -hmm. but they're like ascribing this to like the sioux yeah. right which is a word used by people not in the nation to talk about yeah. a sort of con not really a confederation but like a linked yeah. system of multiple, multiple nations, nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that are like ethnically integrated and varying in size and it within that then have smaller governing structures yeah. that operate based on like all sorts of different concepts that are existing. Absolutely. And it's just like not a thing. And it has, there's not, that's not how people work. <laughs> well, and it's also in the way <laughs> it's that not so, how bees work, <laughs> but like tribe is an ancient word, right? Tribe yeah. is a, is a, uh, is it a Latin word? Yeah. Latin word. I don't know. Right. No. I, I should know this stuff. And so you're taking this concept from the ancient world and you're applying it to cultures around the, like around the world. But the, the, the concept that you're taking from antiquity is not the concept that we like the way that we use the word tribe yeah, now for exactly. these, like the tribe in, you know, there's a tribal system in, in classical Athens. Mm -hmm. um, but that's basically just like a clan system where yeah. there's like these systems of extended family networks mm -hmm. that work within, you know, a very complicated political system where yeah. that's just one form of loyalty that you have. Mm -hmm. And the tribes can be formed and reformed. Part of the democratic reforms in, in Athens is that they break down tribal allegiances and reform them right. and connect different families. So like the, your older hereditary relationships that were connected to sort of like class and aristocracy uh -huh. and stuff uh -huh. that those would then be broken down and you would have new tribal relationships for this new democratic period. That's really cool. Which is really cool. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then they, they like, they linked the tribes to geography. So like the urban core, there were 33 tribes originally and the urban core of Athens had 11, the countryside had 11, and then the coastal areas had 11, and then one from each were linked together. So like, okay. like anyway, this is all a total aside. Yeah. Because, and and I was meaning to actually bring this up at some point on Baba Yaga, because going back and listening to some of the stuff that Sonia has been uh, putting out, there's some clarification that I want to be using. She was talking about ancient tribal Greece, at some right. point, right? And and tribes persist as a cultural category through uh, throughout the ancient Greek period, right. right? Like even into, I think, into the Roman period, yeah. at least a little bit, because cities still maintain their domestic character and like some of those those cultural conceptions stick around. But yeah, because they, like they in, totally in modern in modern English now, the con the the concept of tribe is this victorian category that right. really doesn't apply to anyone no. any time in history no this is, this is the thing and, <laughs> and so and so it's based on bad regions of homer yeah. that get them get projected onto indigenous cultures yeah. and then get projected back onto the earliest periods of greek history yeah. when we think there was a lot of migration and then we that's when we talk about 
tribal Greece when like there wasn't urbanization yet or things like that, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we've decided that that is this less sophisticated period of Greek history, even though things like the Homeric epics come from that period, Yeah, you know? And, you know, we've, we have some really beautiful art, some fantastic architecture and Mm -hmm. and things like that. So that's early, early bronze gate, bronze age Greece. Um, Yeah. 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 Well, because the, and if you want some more in-depth information about this, you should yeah. check out the our first video in The Historian's Craft where we talk about how history as a subject field was really developed in the, like, as we know it now, as like a scientific methodological process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's developed by the Victorians really as a way to justify political conquest yeah <laughs> it was not fun but um yeah i mean and like the discipline already existed but like history has always been uh, a political tool yeah like the earliest 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 yeah yeah, yeah. but i mean like the 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 method when we talk about like the university system or like yes, the the exactly. methodology used in like contemporary historical study yeah. comes out of this practice that has its roots and ideas in the enlightenment, but really come about with like Victorian scientific age. Yes. And of course, again, not to hype on this too much, but all referring back to yes, exactly. stories that get told about ancient Greece. Yeah. Right. Because and that's when Greek. people really knew everything. Well, the word history is a Greek word, yeah. right? Historia it's, uh, is means, um, means an account or a retelling. Yeah. Right? Well, because and there's like the the class and racial implications of what it meant to have a classical education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a big deal when some black people learned Latin. <laughs> I mean, that happened 2,500 years ago. I Latin know, was, was a spoken like, language, like... but like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, we got way off bees. So those bees. Them thar bees. You want to <laughs> skip from the Gaeponica right into the Anglo-Saxon world? Yeah. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're not going to get into more any, any more Greek tangents when it's <laughs> Anglo-Saxons. So there is a uh, an Old English poem, a metrical charm, mm-hmm. that was uh, intended for use in keeping honeybees from swarming. We've known about it since the 19th century. And this charm is named from its opening words, which are with imbe, meaning against a swarm of bees. And uh, it goes like this. Okay. Settle down, victory women, sink to earth. Never be wild and fly to the woods. Be as mindful of my welfare as is each man of border and of home. Fascinating. Okay. Any comments? stay in your house bees stay in your house (laughs) no swarming bad bees (laughs) and a similar period in the ninth century in uh in germany on the continent Mm -hmm. we have a similar blessing this is the lorsch bee blessing okay and this is a prayer that was found uh that that people use to bring bees home keep them safe as they're going out for their nectary tasks and bring them back to the hives and it's preserved in a manuscript, preserved in the Vatican Library. Okay. Uh, which also preserves a copy of the Apocalypse of Paul. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, <laughs> medieval manuscript traditions are great. Uh, and it's called the Lorsch uh, Blessing because it originally comes from a monastery in Lorsch in, okay. in Germany. And they, that, that poem goes like this. Christ, the bee swarm is out here. Now fly. <laughs> Christ, the bee swarm is out here. Now fly, you my animal, come here. In the Lord's peace and God's protection, come home in good health. Sit, sit, bee, the command to you from the Holy Mary. You have no vacation. Don't fly into the woods. Neither should you slip away from me, nor escape from me. Sit completely still. Do God's will. You have no vacation. <laughs> no vacation. No vacation for, for bees. you. No vacation for the bees. Sounds like the bees need to unionize. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but those were happier times for the bees because these days we have a crisis. Oh my god! Oh, we're talking about okay. Yeah, we're going to talk about colony collapse disorder. Mm. 
makes okay. me sad. So we don't think this is one thing. So this is yeah. a, a term that's used for ongoing trend of bee decline. Mm-hmm. We think that there's actually multiple causes mm-hmm. and it will take a number of different forms. So CCD, colony collapse disorder, only refers to phenomenon uh, phenomena characterized by the sudden, like overnight in some cases, um, the sudden loss of the vast majority of the hive, leaving a queen full larvae cells, full brood cells, and full honey stores behind. So all of the bees will disappear, leaving behind like an intact hive. Okay. In collapsed hives, we wouldn't find any dead bees, which is puzzling to scientists, obviously. Um, <laughs> and if it's a disease or some environmental toxin or something, we don't have any dead bodies. It's hard to study what is actually going on. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has been studying the phenomenon seriously since 2009, uh, when it became apparent that colony collapse was not something that would disappear on its own. Well, alarming colony collapse disorder is not the main reason behind the mass die-off of the bees and is much less common today than when we first started hearing about it in the media. Okay, so that's good. That is a good thing. But there are still a lot of problems facing bees. Right. So uh, the honeybee population is in decline around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, research on the possible causes of honeybee bee population decline is ongoing, and there has been some progress. Most recent evidence points to a combination of factors as the culprit. According to the USDA, these factors include parasites, pests, pathogens, poor nutrition, and sublethal exposure to pesticides. So in terms of parasites, scientific research, current scientific research indicates that parasites and the diseases they carry are the main threat to the lives of honeybees. The most dangerous one is a mite with a descriptive name. So this is Varroa destructor. <laughs> I am Varroa destructor. <laughs> um, we have a fantastic wrestling name. Uh, fantastic drag queen name. Yeah. Com- so this is, uh, these are commonly known just as Varroa mites. I think they mm-hmm. chose the wrong half of the last name. These should be destructor mites. And these parasites often affect bees before they can even emerge as adults. Okay. Their parasitic relationship with the bees is similar to that of ticks and mammals. And the main issue lies in the disease that they carry, which is called deformed wing virus. Or no, this is one of many. So the deformed wing virus is one of many diseases that they can carry. When a hive is already weakened, a varroa mite infestation can wipe it out. There are also other parasites... Uh, that can infect a small hive that can cause a, a hive to collapse, including the small hive beetle, which is called Ithena tomita, and uh, the various Nicema species, which are microsporidian gut parasites. Okay, also in terms of diseases, we've got some fantastic names here. So American fowl brood is one disease, and the deformed wing virus is another. These are bacterial and viral diseases. The American fowl brood affects larvae less than a day old and prevents them from surviving until adulthood, while the deformed wing virus is transmitted through varroa mites and prevents the bees from being able to fly properly. Uh, Poor nutrition is also going to be an issue here, right? Uh, Some human farming practices are making it more challenging for the bees to forage a well-balanced diet, such as monoculture farming. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is when only one crop is grown on a piece of land year after year after year. And And it's affecting all of our pollinators. uh, It's it's a terrible, terrible type of uh, pollinator that we rely on to pollinate those same crops. Oh no. Awful. Yeah. 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 So like, yeah. So honeybees get malnourished. This is an issue. And then they're more susceptible to the parasites, to the diseases, to the pesticides. The pesticides in question are also a contributing factor. Uh, scientists are continuing to re- research exactly which ones there are the problem and what the exact effects are. Mm-hmm. Different application methods might be an issue as well. So like when you apply, where you apply the plant. The most studied chemical culprit is a class of agricultural pesticides called neonicotinoids. 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 I don't know how you pronounce that. Neonicotinoids. I would think in in English, because you put the 
Oh, no. So I'm just breaking it down in my head. So neo means new. Uh-huh. Oid means looks like. Uh-huh. And nicotine is the core thing. So okay. neo, neo nicotinoids would probably be how you would do that. Okay. Right? Probably. Anyway, doesn't matter. They're bad. These chemicals are systemic, meaning that the plant takes them into its vascular system and spreads it to all tissues. Um, they are effective only after uh, after only one application, and they affect only invertebrates. So bees are invertebrates. Yep. Uh, meaning they're less susceptible to runoff and less dangerous to humans, birds, and livestock, etc. They're very popular for that reason. In theory, the pesticides shouldn't affect bees who are eating the pollen and nectar, not the plant's tissue. However, studies have found trace amounts of pesticide in pollen grains. Uh, and through bioaccumulation, that can just grow and grow and grow yeah. in the, the bee's body. Bees bringing pollen back to their hives for food. One pollen grain with trace chem- chemicals wouldn't be an issue, but then bioaccumulation, right? And right. so that gets into the honey, gets into the whole hive. It's an issue. Yeah. Scientists have not however found that the chemicals accumulate to critical levels within the bees wax pesticides also interfere with bee communication which is almost entirely reliant on chemical and physical signals the chemicals and pesticides have been shown to alter their foraging behavior their communication and their larval development pesticides lower the bees immune system weakening the hive and leaving it open to parasitic infection so it's like this cycle of different Mm -hmm. things all feeding to each other so how can you help Things that you can personally do is don't grow a lawn. A more biodiverse uh, yard, that's going to be way better for the bees. So especially plants with flowers and fruits and vegetable plants, those are going to be fantastic. Uh, Any ground covering plant that is actually native. Exactly. So that was exactly the the next thing I was going to say. Native plants. Because most of the grasses that are grown in North America are from Europe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, We have very few native grasses grown by humans. Exactly. Yeah. So propagated for for humans. Yeah. Which is not very good. That's also bad for bees. uh, You and I, we don't have yards, so what can we do? (laughs) Uh, So you might have a balcony or a porch. You do. I don't. I live in a box. (laughs) Under the ground. Yeah, under the ground. Jesus. Um, (laughs) So get some bee-friendly plants out there if you can help. That can can be uh, good for your local bees. Uh, And you can also keep bees yourself, which is a great thing. And things that you can do sort of politically in your, your local environment you can call municipal officials. You can lobby for them to stop spraying these harmful pesticides mm-hmm. and also for like all the same changes in terms of like lawn care and stuff that you mm-hmm. would do with your own lawn. There's always local environmental groups. Some of those are going to be advocating for bee-friendly cities. Lots of places are encouraging lawns to transition to native plants, native mm-hmm. grasses, even if you want to keep a, your own lawn. Or letting dandelions grow on public uh, lawns, right? Like the little meridians by the side of the street. Yeah. Why not have a dandelion there? The right. bees are our friends. Uh, and as with any sort of uh, advocating, you can start local and then you can start spiral out from there. So there is policy around pesticide regulation and things like that. Mm-hmm. Those are decisions that are made federally, both in right. Canada and the U.S. The other thing in terms of like... Um pesticide and food production Mm -hmm. that we've talked about in other episodes that is also really important to this is if you want to get involved in a system of activism that will help on multiple fronts um, is the food sovereignty movements that we've talked about before because whether you're the food sovereignty movement that you support or get involved with um is run by indigenous folks or um, settlers well uh so most of the food sovereignty groups are are run by racialized groups so it's either um indigenous normally or african-american um and either one of those are growing either one of those groups will use growing practices that are explicitly not monocultures they'll be polycultures and which means that one, there are more plants for bees to like get pollen from, but also that polycultures just by benefit of how they exist don't need pesticides in the same way that 
a monoculture will, what will happen is because pollinators are coming there, predator insects and invertebrates yeah, yeah, yeah. will also come there yeah. and eat the pests. Right, um, right. It keeps down polycultures, keep down mosquito yeah. populations as well, which yeah. is really good for preventing bloodborne illnesses anywhere no like um, it, it's, it's just generally like it's a great idea so yeah and we can advocate for agricultural reform right generally yes. where it's like legislate yes. out yes. monoculture absolutely yeah so monocultures are good for getting a lot of product off the ground in a in the short term yes. they are not good or in literally any other way yeah. <laughs> right and so you know we right now have a population a global population that relies on us having monocultural uh, uh, agriculture, right? No, we do. Like our modern food systems are the food systems because we throw so much food away. So we do yeah, produce. There's, there's a, like a four series times of things. more food than would feed each person on the planet. But, Absolutely, yeah. but part of the crisis that is ongoing in Sri Lanka right now. Right. is that the country switched entirely to organic or agriculture overnight yeah. and no longer produces enough food to feed the population. Right. They went from being a food exporting country to a food importing country. Obviously, we need agricultural reform, but that doesn't just look like, all right, we're going to legislate a revolution right now. This yeah. is big, yeah. systematic change, and it takes time. And like, just want to be clear about like, Advocacy work is work, and it will not produce results overnight. Yeah, and this is a long process of we need to re. I'm going to use this phrase that a lot of people don't like. We need to to on in multiple ways re-indigenize our food production. So not just in the terms of indigenous people running food right. which like yes that should yeah. be a big part of this but also food the food that you eat on a day-to-day basis should be local to the area that you're in yeah. it should be produced locally and also like with that comes you know our food should not be a corporate process no absolutely right um, and you should have access to food regardless of if you have cash yeah, right yeah, like yeah. all of those things because food we is have right. so much more food than and this is i mean fucking shit it's the same crap that is in the grapes of wrath where they're burning yeah, all yeah. of the oranges in california because no one in the depression can buy oranges yeah. but if we just let or the reason that there's not fruit trees like yeah. female fruiting trees in major cities well i mean that's also complicated because fruit is messy yes right? no no, like, no. i mean there's, there's multiple legitimate there's, reasons there's multiple why, reasons but, for that but part of it is also who then gets the fruit exactly Exactly. Um, which was is a serious part of those conversations that Victorian city boards had about no, what plants are going to be. Pro- and they're like, well, how are we if we plant a bunch of apple trees that will grow apples? Yeah. How are we going to get people to buy apples? Maybe people should just get to have apples. Yep. <laughs> yep. 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 But I mean, this brings us back to bees kind of I mean, the concept of re-indigenization because yeah. honeybees aren't native to North America. Yeah. Right. So we're talking about colony collapse in the native American or in the North American context. Uh, but one of the things that you can do to help reform our food systems is in encouraging and supporting all of the uh, indigenous bees, the native bees here yeah. that are super endangered now, right? Yeah. All the mason bees. Um, you can look up how to build a mason bee house. There are these little ground dwelling bees and they're really yeah. friendly and they're really cool and like they need our help. Yeah. And if I had a balcony, I would have a mason bee house. My parents keep mason bees. <laughs> it's yeah. very sweet. Also, if you're in Montreal, there is the um, the apiary collective. Yeah, in Montreal, where you can—it's essentially like all of the um, community gardens, but it's an apiary. Yeah, there, there's municipal hives all over the city. Yeah. There's one at the art gallery, like mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Fantastic. But you can I'm, get you can like get involved in like and then you can get honey and shit from them. No, I I'm I'm not opposed to honeybees being in North America. No, I know. It's just there's other bees as well. They also need our yeah. help. Like be friends to all the bees. All of the pollinators yeah. need help. Yeah. Our good yeah. comrades, the bees. It's our honey comrade. <laughs> Some bees are more equal than others. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. No, see you guys soon. Bye. Communism here. <laughs> Animal farm crap out of here. <laughs> he was a socialist. I know he, he just was. hated Stalin. I know. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Hi, I'm Margot and I'm Sonia. And we're historians interested in making cultural history and folklore accessible. We've made the Baba Yaga Project, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a website to build a community and learn from the past together. We hope you join us for all of Season 3 and subscribe to get notified every time we post.